0: We did find that these changes in the autonomous nervous system precede the development of rheumatoid arthritis patients in people who are at risk by several years, which is an amazing finding. And again, it strongly underpins the idea that this disease is multifactorial, like other chronic inflammatory diseases, that's why it's been so difficult to deeply understand it. And one factor that you may optimize, optimize actually, is the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway.
1: Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host, Nathan Rose.
2: hi everybody welcome back to another episode of metagenics institute podcast i'm your host nathan rose and today i'm very pleased that joining us from england today is professor paul peter tack good a oh, well, good morning for you professor how are you yeah, thank you very much
0: it's, it's indeed in the morning here
2: <laughs> uh and you've been traveling around a lot so um thanks for finding some time for me just had a, a lovely summer vacation and you're kind enough to join me today because you're a real pioneer in an area of managing inflammation that I don't think too many people are familiar with, this cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. Now, we usually start a podcast asking the the guest their background, uh, but you've got a really varied and extensive background, and there's literally podcasts just on all your careers and uh, you've gone from being a physician to a researcher to R and D and doing startups and entrepreneurial work, so we could be here for a long period of time. So my, I suppose I'm after a bit of a synopsis. And I might ask it in a sort of a two part question because the other the other thing that struck me, other than your diverse career, is this. To me, it seems like you've got this real thirst for advancing patient care, particularly through like innovation and as you say, transformative medicine. So maybe using that as a bit of a context, can you describe some of the the highlights of your career and that that burning desire to help patients?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I would primarily um, describe myself as a physician. I've practiced medicine for 25 years. I treated many, many patients. Uh, I trained many medical specialists in the fields of internal medicine and rheumatology in the Netherlands. At some point I started to think, well, I would actually also spend more time on improving the life of patients in the future. In other words, I got involved in research, uh, increasingly in translational research, then also in uh, in discovery, uh, with the goal really to develop not only the best treatments of today and give that to my patients, but also to help uh, discover and develop the therapies of the future. Then um, at some point after having led a large academic department at the academic medical center of the University of Amsterdam, AMC, uh, and I led the, and I created and led the department for 12 years, I thought maybe at this time in my career I can have a bigger impact if I move to the pharmaceutical industry, which was very much a step in the dark because I'd never done that. But imagine that you could develop a new therapy for patients with, with cancer or with autoimmunity or diabetes. You may actually touch the life of millions of patients. So that's why in 2011, I moved from my role as chair of a big academic department, the professor of medicine, to GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, a pharmaceutical company where I became the head of um the immunoinflammation therapy area unit, as it was called at the time. Immunoinflammation was basically everything in the space of rheumatology, gastroenterology, dermatology, clinical immunology, what have you. Uh, and meanwhile, I kept my position in Amsterdam as a professor. I just gave up my role as chair of the board and I was a non salaried professor from that moment on because I had a full time job at ESK. But I come continue to supervise PhD students in Amsterdam. I think this is relevant for what we will we'll discuss today because I could bring the pharma perspective together with the academic and the clinical perspective. Uh, throughout my career, both in academia uh, and during my time at GSK, I've also started biotech companies. And actually one of these biotech companies during the academic years called And uh, was relevant for Uh, the topic of today, which is uh, the inflammatory reflex and the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. At GSK, I also led biotech companies. And then after about seven and a half years, I moved to flagship pioneering in Boston, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, That's the organization that created Moderna, so everybody will know them nowadays. Uh, I learned quite a lot about discovery platforms and uh, value creation. And more recently, I joined a company again in the greater Boston area called Candel Therapeutics, which is completely focused on the development of oncolytic viral immunotherapies. In other words, how can you use viruses to immunize the patient against the patient's own tumor, cancer new antigens in, in diseases like non small cell lung cancer, hyperglyoma, brain cancer? Uh, pancreatic cancer and prostate cancer and potentially other cancers as well. So that's in a nutshell what I've been uh, involved in, laser focus on the patient in everything I do. I've looked at the opportunity and the challenges from different perspectives ranging from the clinical perspective, research um, and also the business perspective to bring medicines and new therapies to patients who need um, much better treatments than are available today.
2: Yeah. do you think that you, I wanted to say, think differently? But you, you certainly not stuck in like rheumatology or um, neurology. You, you sort of cross disciplines. You're thinking like more systems biology. What is it? Do you have this sort of curiosity? Do you think what what makes you stand apart in terms of always in this quest to find novelty and innovation?
0: Yeah, it's a good catch actually, because it is true that that uh, I do not follow the somewhat dogmatic, maybe narrow path in one specific field. I focus on a specific area, and try to give my contribution to the field, and then try to learn new things. So curiosity and lifelong learning is very important for me to stay energized, but also I'm convinced that most discoveries are at the interface of different fields, which means if you really want to drive innovation and transformation of new therapies in, in the field of medicine, you need to be... Active during different stages of your career, career in different fields, which is in the in the topic that we discussed today, the interface between the uh, between neural, neurology basically and inflammation. Uh, so it's true. I became a physician. Then I thought, what well, what am I going to do now? Basically, they're two big. Uh, fields in medicine, one, the people (laughs) with a knife, as I call them, right, the surgeons, and then those um, who uh, are without the knife. And the biggest um, specialty in Europe in that field is actually internal medicine. It has a different meaning than internal medicine in the U.S., which is a bit more family medicine and GP-like. In Europe, including in England, this is uh, typically six years of training after your MD. It's a hospital based uh, medical specialty, which is very broad. Um, then, at some point, when I started to do more research, I started to collaborate with the Department of Rheumatology. I didn't know anything about rheumatology oh. and got really involved in deep immunological research, especially of the site of inflammation in the joint, which is the synovial tissue. Took synovial biopsies, analyzed them in great detail in thousands of patients, and built a whole research line. And then at some point it made sense to also become a rheumatologist. So while I was working on a big PhD project, I did another three years of training in rheumatology and uh, became ultimately a professor of rheumatology. And then later in my career, when I went back to GSK, I wanted to broaden my, my uh, medical scope again and uh, focus on the whole field of internal medicine through the immunolo- immunological lens. And that's why I started to... Uh, lead immunoinflammation in a way that's not restricted to any medical specialty. As I mentioned, that involves rheumatology, dermatology, gastroenterology, could involve anything related to inflammation. And then later I started to become increasingly involved in oncology, in cancer, because there's been a breakthrough, not only in autoimmunity, and we can talk about that, but also in oncology when you think about the development of immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, a uh, Nobel Prize was uh, uh, given for this work to Jim Ellison, who is actually now one of the members of my research advisory board in my current company. So that's a breakthrough. It means that you can cure patients in some cases with cancer, but at the same time the reality is that in most patients we are not able to, to do this. So the question then is, how can you convert non-responders to immune checkpoint inhibitors into responders? And that's the world again of immunoinflammation of somebody with my background, and that's why I became uh, almost exclusively at this stage of my career involved in cancer research. But it's all about the same principles, how can we help patients, and how can we leverage what I call this platform in science, which is immunology, which touches I think at least 90-95% of all diseases across multiple therapy areas.
2: Wow, yeah, I agree. All right, well, let's start unpeeling this uh, onion layer around the inflammatory reflex or the, the cholinergic uh, anti-inflammatory pathway. Now, I'm a little bit familiar with the early discovery um, by Professor Kevin Tracy, uh, but I'm not as familiar with your contribution. I, but, I, but in my mind, between the two of you, really paved out this, this pathway. And maybe just before we get into it, like... Um, what was the sort of state of play over the past, up until maybe 20, 30 years ago, in terms of managing inflammation um, and our yeah. knowledge of our innate uh, anti-inflammatory responses?
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's important that people realize that first there have been important breakthroughs in the in the treatment of patients with chronic immune-mediated inflammatory diseases. I abbreviate that as IMEDS. And I use that term deliberately because there are many shared features and also distinct features between conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, which is a prototypic immune-mediated inflammatory disease affecting the joints, and, for example, inflammatory bowel disease, An example, is Crohn's disease, and psoriasis, and multiple sclerosis, et cetera, et cetera. So if you start to think about these conditions more from a mechanistic point of view, rather than based on the clinical signs and symptoms, I think then that allows us actually to advance the science in a better way in terms of immunological interventions that may have an impact on, let's say, subsets of rheumatoid arthritis patients, subsets of inflammatory bowel disease patients, subsets of psoriasis patients, etc. A great example would be the discovery of the TNF blockers, anti-TNF treatments in the late 90s. Right. A key role was played by the uh, Kennedy Institute in England. But actually, I was at Leiden University Medical Center at the time in the Netherlands. We participated in the first clinical trial worldwide with the, uh, with this anti-TNF antibody, which was then called CA2 or infliximab. And that was like a miracle. Uh, but it does not work in all patients. Uh, but it also worked in other indications like psoriasis, um, inflammatory bowel disease, again, not in all patients, but in some of them. So that illustrates, again, together with other arguments, that we need to start to think about immunomediated inflammatory diseases from a more molecular perspective. So there has been a breakthrough in the 90s by the development of these so-called targeted therapies in a way comparable to what I just described uh, to the um, uh, breakthrough in cancer that came later which were the immune checkpoint inhibitors, right? And uh, in both cases, the reality is that many patients do not respond sufficiently. So what is the situation in rheumatoid arthritis? There are now the TNF blockers, and there are B-cell inhibitors, and IL-6 inhibitors, and JAK inhibitors, and what have you, better use of uh, treatments that have been around for a longer period of time, like methotrexate, corticosteroids, of course, also associated with side effects. If you use all these medicines that are now available in, in 2022 in an optimal way, then the reality is, if you go back to rheumatoid arthritis, that about 50% of the patients will still have active inflammation in spite of all these treatments that are available. So that means there's still a huge unmet need. And this is not different in other chronic immune-mediated inflammatory diseases. In some cases, the percentage is even higher. So. The glass is kind of half full, right? We have proof of mechanism that they can really transform the life of patients in a very positive way. At the same time, there's a remaining unmet need. And when you look at this uh, at the population level, then if you group all these conditions together, then about 7%, it varies between papers, but it's more less like 7% of the population will suffer from an immune-mediated inflammatory disease at any time point. And it goes up in aging populations, not because these are conditions necessarily of the elderly, but because they are chronic. So you may get it at a relative young age, but the older you get, you will still have it, right? So overall population goes up in the Western world. That means huge unmet need. And um, it's very important to develop new treatments in an unbiased way, in terms of modality, so this could include small molecules, including targeted small molecules. It could include biopharmaceuticals like antibodies or other uh, biopharmaceutical constructs. It could involve cell and gene therapy approaches. It could involve um, completely new approaches like uh, interventions focused on the gut microbiome, or electrical uh, stimulation of the nervous system to control inflammation
2: interesting so um as a segue with the electrical stimulation you were part of the the pioneers in discovering this uh this pathway so can you start to yeah describe this pathway and and um your role in in its um discovery
0: yeah absolutely so I've given you a few elements in the kind of narrative that may now be helpful to understand how yeah. we got here. I was, at the time, a professor of medicine, in particular rheumatology, at the Academic Medical Center, and we tried to, op- to improve the outcome of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, which I see as a prototypic immune inflammatory disease. So lessons learned there may be relevant for other fields like Crohn's disease. And we used a multi-modular approach, a holistic approach. I'm not restricted in terms of any modality, like small molecules, antibodies, or whatever it may take to improve the life of patients. And we had come to the conclusion that there's a subpopulation of patients who actually respond to systemic treatments, like uh, anti TNF antibodies, as I mentioned, but who will still have one or two or three joints that are still clinically inflamed. And then the question is, what do you do now? Do you switch them to another treatment? Uh, maybe the disease will get worse because actually they're very responders. Mm-hmm. Or do you do a local intervention of that uh, joint? Let's say the patient is doing well, but there are, there's still one clinically inflamed knee joint. And it's very severe, it's painful, and the patient cannot really walk. So there's a huge impact in terms of disability and quality of life. So what will a good uh, rheumatologist do? They will inject the joint. They will, if there's no uh, contraindication like infection, inject uh, corticosteroids, uh which is effective in many patients, but it does limit, I mean, the duration of the response is limited. Not everybody responds. You can't do it more often than four times a year. So it helps, but it's not good enough. Then we thought maybe we can develop something more sophisticated, which is intra-articular gene therapy. So a gene construct that you inject into the inflamed joint that will release an anti-inflammatory product, an anti-inflammatory mediator, uh, ideally under the control of an inflammation-dependent promoter. So you create a kind of new feedback mechanism, was the idea, or homeostasis or if you wish, cure, in that particular joint. So for that goal, we had uh, created a a small biotech company called AstroGen. So we were interested at the time uh, in the discovery and development of new intra-articular gene therapy approaches. And we had a collaboration with a biotech company in Europe called Galapagos, which became uh, later uh, well-known in the field. So we created a discovery platform in a completely unbiased way. So this is a story of serendipity, of being completely unbiased. And we took biopsies from the joints of patients with actively inflamed rheumatoid arthritis joints. So we did arthroscopy, we took synovial tissue samples, and we analyzed them. We isolated the key FN cell type from these tissue samples called the fibroblast-like synoviocytes. So they are stromal cells. That play a key role in autonomous disease progression in inflammation in rheumatoid but actually also in other diseases so we had these in vitro systems where we cultured the fibroblasts like synovicides and then we used a so-called shRNA library to inhibit the function of multiple genes thousands of genes and then we look what is the impact on the features of these like synoviocytes in terms of their production of pro-inflammatory mediators like cytokines such as interleukin-6, IL-6, interleukin-8, IL-8, which is a cytokine and the chemokine, and the production of degrading enzymes that degrade the, the bone and cartilage in the joint. joint. And these were matrix metalloproteinases. So we were doing this to identify new therapeutic targets for our discovery program in gene therapy and one of the big hits that we found was the so-called alpha 7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor which i will call alpha 7 receptor for short because it's such a long word and then i thought oh well what is this doing right and i went to the literature And did indeed find um, interesting work in acute models of inflammation, like sepsis models in mice, uh, by Kevin Tracy. So we were not looking for anything related to the nervous system. We were not looking for anything related to the system. In a completely unprecedented way, we found based on human biology for the first time the potential role of the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. And Kevin Tracy, who has been a pioneer in this field of acute inflammation, had shown uh, that if you inhibit this pathway in these acute models in mice, they actually get more uh, severe disease and they die in models of sepsis. And if you stimulate this pathway, for example, through vagus nerve stimulation, then you may protect them against getting a very low blood pressure, hypotension associated with death. In these mars. So we asked the question, could it be that this mechanism also plays a role in chronic inflammation? And we replicated the findings in vitro, so we cultured fibroblasts like cells, and we stimulated them with specific alpha-7 agonists, so small molecules that were able to stimulate uh, this pathway in vitro. And we got these alpha- alpha-7 agonists from various biotech companies. And we could show that if you add this in vitro, then it leads to reduced production of interleukin-6, interleukin-8, various matrix metalloproteinases, so exactly all the things you would like to see if you start to think about the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. And others have replicated this. So then we thought, well, uh, is actually the alpha-7 receptor uh, expressed at the site of inflammation of rheumatoid arthritis patients, because actually there's, there's no evidence that the vagus nerve innervates the synovial tissue, which is a kind of a complicated story. So we did immunohistochemistry and immunofluorescence and could detect abundant expression of the alpha-7 receptor in the synovial tissue expressed by both these fibroblasts like synovicides, but also expressed by leukocytes like macrophages. So the receptor was present at the site of inflammation. We had shown that if you activate this pathway, then it leads to reduced uh, evidence of inflammation in vitro. But then we thought, well, how about in vivo? So we went straight to a mouse model. And this is really a story where this is very atypical. Every experiment that we did worked. (laughs) So I've done this with one senior scientist in my lab, Magritte Vervoordeldong, and two PhD students. There was maybe a few technicians. So it was a very small uh, effort, and typically many um, uh, uh, experiments fail, right? You need to go back (laughs) and understand why. Here, everything seems to work. So we went very quickly. And we did an experiment where we did a unilateral vagotomy of the vagus nerve in a mouse model of collagen induced arthritis. So that means. And uh, we dissected the vagus nerve on one side. You can't do it on both sides because then the mice stopped breathing. Mm. And we could show that there was a trend towards increased arthritis activity in this model of rheumatoid arthritis. So I thought that's interesting. Then we induced collagen-induced arthritis in alpha-7 knockout mice. So mice lacking this receptor. And again, there was increased inflammation, so they got more inflamed uh, paws, more inflamed joints, and there was more uh, destruction of the bone and cartilage. Of course, we want to improve inflammation. So then we did the opposite experiments. We uh, gave the mice uh, nicotine in the drinking water. And nicotine is a kind of non-specific stimulator of the alpha and several Uh So smoking is not good for rheumatoid arthritis, just to be very clear about that. Right. It's very very well known, a negative prognostic factor. However, there's much more in smoke than just nicotine. And nicotine also has side effects. So it's only for proof of mechanism in the mouse models that we use this. And we could show that if you add nicotine to the drinking water in a model of collagen-induced arthritis, that the mice got less arthritis. Then we injected it intraperitoneally. Again, a separate experiment. That we injected nicotine so that you get better control of the dose than when you just uh, let the mice drink at Libiton. And we could replicate this completely. Protection against arthritis and protection against progressive joint destruction. Then we spoke again to the biotech companies that had so kindly provided us with the Alpha 7-specific agonist because we wanted to make sure that nicotine was not stimulating another receptor that might be involved in this beneficial effect. And we could completely replicate these beneficial effects using a specific alpha-7 agonase. And we've done this again and again with different molecules. So that was true. And then we started to talk to a company in the U.S. called Setpoint, Setpoint Medical. And they were interested in this pathway. And we worked together on an experiment that was conducted in their in their labs Um, and the first author of this paper is my postdoc um, uh, and i was the last author of this paper and we could stimulate if you give electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve for only 60 seconds per day in a red model uh, of collagen-induced arthritis this is a very severe disease then we could very clearly demonstrate evidence of reduced inflammation in the joints and protection against bone and joint uh, uh, degradation and also beneficial effects on various biomarkers that we mentioned. So that was super exciting. This has been published. But I'm a translational scientist, and I thought this has been a great discovery. We published the idea of um, treatment of patients with chronic inflammatory disease in Nature Review, reviews rheumatology, maybe you can add the, the reference to this podcast, uh, I think this was the first proposal in the scientific literature of this idea in chronic inflammation. And then said, well, we could stimulate this pathway through electrical stimulation or through pharmacological inflammation, for example, using uh, alpha-7-specific agonists, small molecules. So then I went to the neurosurgeons in the AMC, the Academic Medical Center of the University of Amsterdam, and said there are vagus nerve stimulators that have been approved for the treatment of therapy-resistant epilepsy and also therapy-resistant depression. And I found in the literature that hundreds of thousands of patients have been treated already. So there must be a huge safety database. I would be interested in going straight from these experiments that I just summarized two patients with rheumatoid arthritis and asked the question, is this actually relevant not only in mice, but also in men? Um, so do you have experience in implanting this device uh, that was on the market and developed by Cyberonics To test my hypothesis, and they said, yeah, we've done this before, and for a neurosurgeon, uh, these things seem to be extremely simple. So, they had, uh, so we, we created uh, a protocol Supported and sponsored by Setpoint, where we implanted the Cyberonics device in our patients with therapy resistant rheumatoid arthritis. And we invited a few other centers in the world to participate as well, uh, including in uh, Central Europe. And this is the clinical trial that was uh, published later in the PNAS. And I'm I'm happy to elaborate on this, but I would also be happy to, to. speak about some of the lessons that I learned about the patient perspective about this approach.
2: Yeah, amazing. I, I might just um, pause and circle back firstly yeah. because that was an incredible story of discovery. So just to, to summarize, as I understand it, there's this, this, these pathways and maybe you can differentiate between the, the terminology we we're speaking off, offline about the inflammatory reflex versus the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. But essentially the... The way I see it, from my amateur perspective, we've got like the hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal access, which responds to inf- our body's looking, you know, sensing inflammation. It, re- um, it releases like cortisone to try and suppress the inflammation. But essentially, as I as I understand, you and others have un- um, unearthed this other neural mechanism where our um, nervous system is subconsciously assessing the terrain in- internally, and if there's inflammation. It sends a signal up to the brain and reflex back down the, the vagal nerve. It releases this neurotransmitter acetylcholine, and you can maybe get into spleen versus gut versus joints. Um, and yeah. this hits the alpha-7 receptor, which you discovered, and it has this powerful anti-inflammatory property. Can you correct me on that or um, just elaborate on that, The sort of the physiology yeah, there? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I will, I will elaborate on this. Um, so, so first, I, I don't claim that we discovered the alpha-7 receptor, but we did actually discover the role of the alpha-7 receptor in chronic inflammation in humans, and we described yes. this concept, I think, for the first time, really being inspired by the fantastic work by Kevin Tracy in models of acute inflammation, like sepsis models, and he's been a pioneer in that field as well. So um, we used the term at the time, cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, because that's what it is. It is cholinergic, right? So it's related to yep. the vagus nerve, and, and it is anti-inflammatory. Now, I think if you we, if we start to think about how we can leverage this pathway and uh, how we can be inspired by this pathway to develop new therapies, and I'm completely open-minded what these therapies would look like in terms of modality. There may be completely different modalities that we could use here to improve the life of patients, then probably the best way to look at it is is from the perspective of the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. What Kevin Tracy has described in the the past is really interesting. He has postulated basically that the vagus nerve is able to sense inflammation in the periphery. It leads to a signal to the brain and the subsequent efferent signal uh, to some Part of the body, which does not need to be directly the inflamed area, this could ultimately be the spleen, leading to in, via an indirect mechanism to an inflammatory um, uh, signal. And he called that an inflammatory reflex. So the inflammatory reflex and the cholinergic anti inflammatory pathway are very strongly re- related to each other. Uh, the terms are not completely identical. So, how do we think about the mechanism of action? So apparently, th- there's clearly inflammation in conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, not limited to the joint. That's why you can measure if you take blood samples uh, that there's an elevated ESR and there's are uh, elevated CRP, C-reactive uh, peptide levels. So clear evidence of systemic inflammation. So the vagus nerve will send somewhere in the body that has inflammation. It leads to a signal to the brain, followed by a signal to the severe ganglia. And then, this is translated into stimulation of the splenic nerve, or splenic nerve. Uh, interesting enough, this nerve is considered to be sympathetic. If you just think about the dichotomy of the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic nervous system, they work together in a very complicated way. So everything that I learned in medical school may not be completely correct. I think it's a really interesting uh, insight here that we learned based on, the, on this discovery. Uh, Again, this discovery about the mechanism is largely in Kathy Tracy's lab. So this leads to a signal to the spleen where the T cells are starting in response to the signal to release acetylcholine. So a sympathetic signal may lead to the release of a parasympathetic um, vagus nerve-associated molecule which is a neurotransmitter, which is acetylcholine. Uh, So it's super uh, interesting when you think about that, that ultimately will change the the properties of mononuclear cells in the spleen, like monocytes, that will get more anti-inflammatory properties. They will migrate all the time throughout the body, including to the joint. There's actually a continuous influx of monocytes into the joint of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Actually, I've shown that many years ago by using a direct labeling of monocytes in patients. Nobody had done that before. So we right. took blood from patients. We isolated the monocytes, all under good clinical practice and DLP and, and conditions. And then we labeled them and re-injected them into the same patients. They got their own monocytes, which were now labeled. And then we did scans and we could visualize the continuous influx. So if these monocytes that continuously go into the joint become more anti-inflammatory, it will dampen inflammation. So I I think there's still a lot of work to be done to deeply understand every factor that's involved in this mechanism, but this is more or less the current thinking, uh, and that's truly interesting. If you think about it in that way, then you can also think about multiple points of intervention potentially to improve the life of patients with inflammation. You could try to stimulate the vagus nerve through electrical stimulation, as we've done, and I will come back to the trial, you could start to think about uh, could you replicate the effects by using small molecules or maybe uh, in terms of consumer healthcare and nutritional products by using metabolites or other molecules that play a key role in this pathway or that are actually released in response to vagus nerve stimulation Uh, or uh, lifestyle intervention. So you could do different things to to change the balance, thinking about it from the perspective of homeostasis in a holistic way, to change the the balance between pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory factors in, in in the body of a human being who is suffering from inflammation. And we did find that these changes in the autonomous nervous system precede the development of rheumatoid arthritis patients in people who are at risk by several years, which is an amazing finding. And again, it strongly underpins the idea that this disease is multifactorial like other chronic inflammatory diseases. That's why it's been so difficult to deeply understand it. And one factor that you may optimize actually is the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway.
2: Yeah. uh, So (laughs) there's another area I want (laughs) to uncover now as well. You mentioned that you did another pioneering study, which I think to me is yeah really really important that you said it precedes the onset of rheumatoid arthritis so the idea in my mind is that in this and potentially other inflammatory conditions could it be the the loss of the inflammatory breaks um with this cholinergic pathway could be a major contributor to the the onset of the disease so could you describe that 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 trial
0: yeah absolutely so, so again, uh, when we speak about rheumatoid arthritis, I introduced the concept of thinking about it in a more molecular way and introduced the concept of IMEDS, immune-mediated inflammatory diseases. The flip side of that is that what we currently describe as rheumatoid arthritis is not one disease, but it is a syndrome characterized by shared clinical signs and symptoms. So, in a way, it's almost a little bit irrational. Uh, I think I can say that because I'm one of the co-authors of the classification criteria (laughs) of rheumatoid arthritis, but it was the best that we had so far, right? So if you focus on the largest, largest subset of rheumatoid arthritis patients, these are patients who have specific autoantibodies um, like rheumatoid factor and or anti-citrullinated peptide antibodies, ACPA antibodies. So we found that if you detect rheumatoid factor and or ACPA levels in people who are still completely healthy, they've never had any inflammation in their joint, they may have a little bit of pain in the joint, and often they may have, for example, a positive family member, right, there is a, there's a genetic risk, then these people, in our hands, had the risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis in about two years of more or less 40%. So that's the population that, and so this is a lot of work, I can tell you, right? So we had to screen 100 people at exhibitions and everywhere uh, who had, for example, a family history of rheumatoid arthritis to find one person with elevated ACPA levels and on rheumatoid factor wow. uh, levels. went yeah, yeah. into my study, it's called the pre-RA cohort, and we had multiple pre-RA cohorts in the end, and we followed them over time. In these people... I should not call them patients, but they, because they were not patients, they had no disease. They had evidence of autoimmunity in the blood. In these people, we could we measured many things, including heart rate variability and simple things like resting heart rate, which everybody can easily measure with devices that many of us wear wearables like a Fitbit or an Apple device or whatever it is. Yes. And um, we found that. Um, abnormal vagus ter- uh, tone, reduced vagus tone to be more specific, was associated with increased risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis after two years in this cohort of healthy people with evidence of autoimmunity in the blood who were at risk of developing RA. We've shown that in two independent cohorts, um, so that means it's uh, probably true. And we've published that um, in a journal called e-BioMedicine. Uh, in um, I need to think about the year, but you may want to add it yes. in 2016 to the list. Up. So this is yes. the first time that that this has been uh, uh, shown actually in the literature. There were already papers showing that in patients, I call them patients now, with established rheumatoid arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis, another rheumatological disease or SLE, lupus, again, another rheumatological disease, or inflammatory bowel disease, that patient with established inflammation, that there was a reduced vagus nerve tone, as shown by heart rate variability. But the key question there was, is that uh, causal? Or is that actually the result of inflammation? And also, if you think about rheumatoid arthritis patients at the time, right, many ended up in a wheelchair this was before the creation of all these new treatments. So they were also more inactive, which also leads to reduced vagus like, nerve tone. It's yeah. kind of a vicious yeah. cycle. So it was very difficult to unpack this until we did this study that we could really show that people who led a normal life, uh, but who were at risk based on autoimmunity and their factors, I think not related to, to the nervous system that explain the autoimmunity as shown by ACPA levels. It's a whole story in itself that these people had abnormal vagus term on average. And even if you look at the correlation within these cohorts, there was a direct correlation between the vagus nerve tone measured by investing resting heart rate and the chance of developing RA after two years.
2: Yeah, and did you also mention uh, measure the alpha-7 receptors in these people as well and that? Was lowering the at risk patients? Yes, that's correct.
0: I didn't mention it, but it is in the paper. So you're very
2: well uh, informed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I almost forgot about that six years ago.
2: Is that further evidence that the um, yeah. this, this lack of sort of vagal tone or cholinergic yeah. drive to, to dampen this inflammation? Yeah.
0: Exactly. Amazing. So I think we, we really need to think about all these conditions through the multifactorial lens. You want to optimize everything. To reduce the probability that they will develop RA. If that's possible, remains to be shown. You need large studies, but you could start to think about if you have a positive family history and somebody has actually measured your blood, do you know that you are O2 antibody positive? You're at risk. You may want to think about optimizing your lifestyle by going to the gym to increase your vagus nerve tone and to reduce your resting heart rate, to lose body weight, because we also found that BMI, body mass index is another independent factor, uh, risk factor for the development of rheumatoid arthritis in this cohort. Uh, and then if you get inflammation, you may want to use a multimodular approach to optimize um, uh, your condition by reducing inflammation as much as possible. And this is a kind of natural way and that's why it's so appealing to patients. I think this is underestimated uh, in the industry. And therefore, I think innovation is often fostered by listening to the patient. Yeah. Patients find it very interesting to, start to think in terms of restoring the balance in a natural way in the body between, for example, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system, or between the more general, the, uh, the uh, autonomous nervous system on the one hand, and the immune system on the other.
1: Now for a short break to share a clinical gem. Jenny was a 59-year-old lady who presented to the clinic with lichen sclerosis due to her history of vulval cancer. She had lymphedema and daily pain, which was rated as an eight to a 10 out of 10. She also had some digestive symptoms such as passing loose stools up to three times a day, often with undigested food in her stool, she had bloating, a bit of reflux, and suffered stress as well as fatigue. So Jenny was asked to reduce her alcohol content and eat more of an anti-inflammatory diet. She was also placed on the gastrointestinal nervous system immune and inflammatory support to stimulate the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, and this was given at two capsules twice a day. Now, after just two weeks, she stated that her energy levels and mood had both increased and she was much less bloated and her daily pain had improved. So it was eight to 10 out of 10. It had dropped down to an eight out of 10, but she also experienced um, times where she had no pain at all. And that was a significant improvement for her. At three weeks, she was given specialized pro-resolving mediators to further reduce her inflammation and herbal support for hyper-HPA and stress. And at week six, Jenny reported that she has so much more zest for life. She's more motivated, hardly any indigestion, no bloating, much firmer stools. In fact, she said her gut feels better than it has in years. And importantly, her pain had reduced even more. The maximal amount of pain, or pain at its worst, was a 6 out of 10. And again, she had an increase in the times where she had no pain at all. So to learn about the combination of herbs and nutrients in the gastrointestinal nervous system immune and inflammatory support, please visit metagenicsinstitute.com.au. That's our clinical gem for the day. Now back to the podcast.
2: Well, I'd like to circle back to that if we've got time. Um, to now probably a less natural way but a powerful um, outcome you mentioned the the clinical trial or the first pilot trial you did where you implanted the the vagal vagal nerve stimulator in these patients with rheumatoid arthritis. so tell the audience what happened when you ins- it was inserted and that that switch was um, flicked in a sense
0: yeah. So, what, what, what we, I, as I mentioned, we had this very successful small research line uh, in, based on in vitro and animal experiments. I wanted to know uh, this could be relevant in humans before I would take it in, back into the lab to optimize the approach. So, we did the kind of opportunistic approach almost sponsored by Setpoint. We used the device from Cyberonics. The implantation took place by the, the neurosurgeons in Amsterdam and also in some of the collaborating centers in Central Europe. And uh, strongly uh, supported by the electrophysiology department, etc., uh, at the AMC. At the AMC, and first I asked the question: Well, this is probably going to be very difficult to recruit patients. This was the time, the era that there were all these new treatments like TNF blockers, IL6 receptor blocker, tocilizumab, and rituximab, B cell inhibitor, et cetera, What have you? Are patients really willing to undergo a neurosurgical procedure, although relatively small one? To undergo this, so to, boost, to, foster, to uh, give a booster to recruitment, I gave an interview to the largest um, newspaper in the journal in the Netherlands, which is called the Telegraaf, like Telegraaf, oh, yes. and uh, no disasters happened at that time. I found myself on one third of the front page on Monday morning. Uh, I was still actually uh, sleeping, and my phone started to ring, communication department from the AMC. The, the article came out, the interview, without data, right? I just described what we found preclinically clinically that we were going to do this trial and that we were going to look for patient volunteers who were willing to participate. Uh, the vo- phone did not stop ringing. Uh, I found myself on national news on television the same evening. And shortly after that, it was covered in c- countries from the Netherlands to Ireland to Mexico. And we had thousands of calls of, p- of patients who wanted to participate. Wow. It was a big lesson in terms of unplanned market research here. <laughs> the patients found it very in- interesting and appealing that one relatively small procedure and they might improve. So then we started actually the study in patients who had failed multiple biologicals, including TNF blockers and another mechanism of action. Before they could actually get the TNF blocker, they had to fail so-called conventional disease modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, DMARTS like metotrexate, which is used in most patients with RA. So they had failed all these treatments. So they had, in other words, therapy-resistant disease. And we could show clear benefit in a uh, a subset of these patients. In fact, some of these patients could stop all the background medication, including corticosteroids. It was a small proportion, but we had proof of mechanism that we could basically induce functional cure with just electrical stimulation for 60 seconds per day similar to the red experiment that we did together with setpoint. And in some patients we went to four times 60 seconds per day, so there's a whole separate discussion about what is the optimal dosing mm-hmm. regimen, I think we still need to learn a lot there. Uh, but I don't believe it made a big difference whether you stimulated one minute or four minutes. Uh, clear benefit in some patients. And then we also opened it up in a second cohort to patients who had a relatively early disease, who had only uh, failed disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, DMART, but who had not used uh, biologicals yet. So very clear evidence um, in a relatively small study, not only of the clinical effects and also the durability of the effect, we've not published that, uh, but we did find that. And I have presented it at ULAR several years ago, ULAR is the European League Against Rheumatism, and, um, and then we published this in the PNAS, uh, which is now, I think, landmark article. The first clinical trial where vagus nerve stimulation using an electrical intervention was used in a chronic inflammatory disease.
2: Amazing. And also, were there some Crohn's disease patients that did a, 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 a similar trial as well around that time?
0: Yeah, I was not personally involved, except, uh, but, uh, except that I should say this was, uh, in part, there were two centers. There was one in France, and there was another study, again, at the AMC. So they were my, my colleagues, and we spoke to each other all the time, so it's not a coincidence. Uh, so um, what has been shown in IBD shortly after this is that, basically the same, if you take patients, include patients with Crohn's disease who had failed TNF blockers, you could see clear benefit of, um, uh, in terms of act, uh, activity of the disease in a significant proportion of the patients. So it, again, reinforces the concept of chronic immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, which, does, which is not limited to the clinical signs and symptoms. In these patients, there are abnormalities that manifest themselves in some patients in the joints, in others in, in, in the skin, for example, generally speaking, uh, psoriasis, in others in, in the gut, inflammatory bowel disease and where you get your information is dependent on many factors like, uh, let's say, composition of the gut microbiome, uh, genetic uh, background, et cetera, et cetera. There are, of course, also clear me- differences between these diseases, but also over- overlapping mechanisms. So this has, I think, been shown now both at AMC in Amsterdam and by a fr- French group that there's real potential in using this approach. Uh, in inflammatory bowel disease interesting enough the gut is of course directly innervated by the vagus nerve in, co- in contrast to the synovial tissue in the joint as far as we yes. know so yes. there may be different mechanisms including a direct effect on the gut
2: yeah yeah and uh, uh, as i understand you, you you've since sort of pivoted or changed direction and looking at cancer which is <laughs> understandable but where do you think this is heading now with these um, implants and set point and so forth yeah.
0: Yeah, so so first, I mean, I have tried to really help to make sure that this may be developed in the right way and that it will ultimately improve the life of patients. Um, so of course, I was involved involved uh, in setpoint at the time. It started as a co- really as a collaboration where we, completely independent from setpoint, came to this to this discovery, as I described. Then we had a fantastic collaboration on the VET model where we used uh, electrical stimulation, and then. They were the sponsor of our clinical trial that that I designed. Uh, And then meanwhile, I had moved to GSK. So this clinical trial in Amsterdam, where I was the PI, the principal investigator, started physically when I was already also the head of immunoinflammation worldwide at GSK. There was an interest at GSK in discovery in in the space of bioelectronics, also completely independent from me initially. So it's interesting how things come together. I went to the leaders of that unit and said, this is very interesting. Do you know that there's already an ongoing clinical trial testing this concept? And he said, no, we're not aware of this. Who's doing that? So, well, I'm I'm doing that. (laughs) uh, So what happened then is that ultimately this unit evolved and became Galvani Bioelectronics. And that's a joint venture between GSK and uh, Verily, the parent company of Google. And we had a great collaboration uh, within Galvani. I was on the board of directors for full disclosure. And also I was a consultant to Setpoint, again, for full disclosure here. And um, so at this moment, Setpoint is developing this as a a way with their own new device that they've developed to stimulate uh, the vagus nerve in the neck, basically the cervical vagus nerve. Setpoint takes a different uh, approach to stimulate the splenic nerve. Uh directly, and uh, both in rheumatoid arthritis, so we will learn a lot, so these are electroceutical approaches I think, I spoke about ways to stimulate the vagus nerve in healthy people who may be at risk Mm -hmm. probably would be good for everybody so I would highlight the importance of exercise we all know that resting heart rate, which is in part a reflection of your vagus nerve tone in fact, in in our study we found that resting heart rate was as good as a predictor of the development of rheumatoid arthritis in people at risk as a very sophisticated uh, test to, to measure um, uh, heart rate variability. So everybody can use this. So exercise has been proven to improve resting heart rate. It uh, needs to go lower. It's good for your whole cardiovascular system. We found that it's probably also important in terms of preven- prevention and perhaps treatment of inflammation. Uh, other lifestyle uh, approaches could include meditation. Um, now I'm claim, now I get a little bit more in speculation. Yes, but it has been shown that, let's say, uh, monks in Tibet are able by meditation to influence ver- their heart rate variability. In other words, they can directly uh, influence the um, um, balance in the autonomic nervous system. And this has been also shown by others in terms of breathing, right? And breathing is, of course, an important concept in most meditation techniques. Uh, So that's very interesting. Uh, There's something that's really exciting, which is cold water immersion. Uh, Personally, I don't like cold water, so I don't do it. Uh, But I do exercise in meditation. Uh, But there's this uh, man from the Netherlands who is world famous called the Iceman. Ah, And very interesting research based on N is one, but actually published in top journals. Uh, He is able to to stay uh, in ice-cold water for a long time, and it has a direct impact on his vagus nerve tone, and there have been many publications about this. So I would really (laughs) encourage people to read about that. I don't encourage you to replicate what he's done, (laughs) because I think it's it's not for everybody. You need to have the right body, you need to be really well trained. There is some suggestion that music may play a role, actually, in stimulating the vagus nerve. Tone. I think there's some. Uh, this is still a little bit controversial, but music yes. is nice to listen to anyway. But even humming and singing may be a way to directly uh, stimulate your vagus nerve. tone. this is all in terms of lifestyle. Uh, in terms of therapeutic approaches, I spoke about electrical stimulation, as is currently pursued by companies like Setpoint. And Galvani bioelectronics, and we will learn a lot also by by comparing the results in these different trials that are ongoing. Then you can think about non-invasive stimulation, for example, trans uh, auricular vagus, uh, vagal nerve stimulation. Actually, it's interesting. There's a specific form of acupuncture that's called auricular acupuncture, where you stimulate certain points in the ear. I don't exclude the possibility that this was actually a way to uh, to stimulate the vagus nerve rather than the meridians. We don't know that, but uh, I think there is some evidence that this may work. Is there an advantage of, if you have a disease of non-invasive stimulation versus uh, invasive procedures to implant something? Well, it's easier, it's more straightforward. The downside is you need to think about it every day. Mm -hmm. And there may be compliance issues. It may be more difficult to standardize how you stimulate the vagus nerve. So time will tell what's better. There may be a place for various approaches. Uh, when we st- started this podcast, uh, Nathan, I spoke about small molecules that could stimulate the vagus nerve. That could be new medicines. I'm not aware of any alpha-7 receptor, acetyl receptor, under development at this time for the treatment of uh, chronic inflammatory diseases via stimulation of, of this pathway. But you could also think about Molecules that are inspired by research on the cholinergic inflammatory pathway, which may be actually products released in the gut, for example, by the gut microbiome, uh, like metabolites, uh, which may lead to the creation of nutritional products, nutritional metabolites, other small molecules that may directly stimulate the vagus nerve in the tone. Of course, there's direct interaction between the vagus nerve in the gut and the brain is direct sign- signaling. And in fact, the gut microbiome is almost like an organ of a few kilograms, right, three to five kilograms in your gut, uh, and this is not just an irrelevant uh, organ. Uh, a lot of metabolites are produced there that are critical to maintain homeostasis and to maintain health. So if you can learn what do they actually produce that are, that is directly involved in stimulation of the vagus nerve to promote health we may replicate that with small molecules. So I would not call that an inflammatory reflex that's leveraging the cholinergic inflammatory pathway. So what I'm saying is we need to think about this in a holistic way. Uh, The body is one system, and every patient is aware of this and having treated patients for many years. I know that based on the questions that they ask, uh, doctor, I just was diagnosed with, let's say, rheumatoid arthritis. But how did that happen? Is it related to my diet? Is it related to changes in the weather, for example, right? Is it related to stress levels? And very often I would say, well, we we, we don't know much about this scientifically. But actually, I increasingly believe that the lesson is patients look at it in a holistic way. There's one body, mind and body are one, right? They, They communicate to each other. It's one integrated, beautiful system. And that's how we need to approach new treatments in a completely holistic way. And that, and the ultimate goal in immune mediated inflammatory diseases, leveraging different modalities and approaches and lifestyle measures should be to inhibit inflammation completely because inflammation is very bad for, for you, not only for the joints or the gut or, or your organs, but for your whole body, including your cardiovascular system and is associated with reduced uh, mortality with increased mortality death and also uh, increased comorbidity these people will have other diseases as well so that's i think some of the big lessons that i learned throughout my career that we may apply in this field
2: beautiful thank you what a, what a great uh, discussion summary so just before we finish up uh what i want to try to underscore is do you feel this is a still uh not a well-known pathway and do you think it deserves to be like common knowledge about this cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway? We should be, as you said, like we know exercise is good for our cardiovascular system. Should we hopefully one day be thinking this, you know, um, lifestyle or diet or whatever is important for my cholinergic anti-inflammatory system for the, for the breaks to, to dampen inflammation?
0: Well, that's a very good question. I think it is important to educate scientists and the general population, A, because it's such an interesting topic, <laughs> right? This is the, an era of unprecedented increase in knowledge in, in the whole biomedical field. It's totally fascinating and it's also relevant for everybody because every human being has a, has a body, right? So, yeah, I think it, it's important to, to educate people because it's, it's fascinating what we are seeing. Second, is uh, it is probably important to educate people about how can they improve their life in a relatively simple way to feel better and to live longer and to improve the quality of life by uh, stimulating exercise and a a healthy lifestyle. Third, in terms of therapeutic interventions that are based on this new field of uh, focused on the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, including the inflammatory reflex, I think it is important for people who are looking for new treatments where they could participate in clinical trials. Mm -hmm. It's important to know that these trials are ongoing and whether or not they could be candidates. At the same time, I'm not advocating that everybody now gets a vagus nerve implant before we have the real evidence, right, long-term studies and approval by the regulatory authorities uh, and also reimbursement by the payers and everything that you need Mm -hmm. to to get to the next stage and to have a marketed product. So it's, that's, it's too early for that at this time. And then in terms of um, consumer healthcare care products, right, like uh, nutritional products, we, we need to see the evidence that these will, will change the life of people in the right way, and that's the right, that it's safe to do it, and that uh, it's the right um, investment that they make because they pay for it out of pocket. I think a lot of research is needed in that field as well. But actually, I think if we are inspired by what happens in terms of natural homeostasis mechanisms, it may lead to completely new therapies that will be one day approved and also completely new consumer healthcare products that people can purchase themselves.
2: Nice. Okay, well, uh, Paul, it's been fantastic to speak to you. Uh, We'll put all the links to the papers you mentioned in the show notes. But before we sign off, where can people learn more about you and, and some of your work? Yeah,
0: well, it's, uh, it's quite easy, I think. Uh, I've, I've put together a lot of what I've done on, the, on one website, which is paulpetertuck.com, and you just write my name as one name, uh, one name, P-A-K, yes. .com. That's where you, where you will find a lot. If you go to the Medline or the PubMed, and you want to get more, uh, learn more about my scientific work in different fields, um, then you go, then you just type in tak, t a k, and space p from Paul, and the next p from Peter, tak PP and you will find my papers. I've have, I have published close to 600 papers. If you want to learn more about my specific uh, work related to what we discussed today, uh, you may actually um, uh, type in. PP and Vegas Vegas right V A G U um, S uh, or you will find some on paulpedita.com uh, or you will find some in the t- in the few papers that you will add to the to the podcast because there's also some reference to the literature so there are many everything has been published that I've told you today um, and I, there's one reference that really describes how we discovered uh, the role of this uh, pathway in chronic inflammation uh, There's the PNAS paper that's really the first paper describing the effects of this clinical trial. I've only touched upon it today, but it's a landmark article. And then there's Great. the third paper in e-biomedicine. So if you type TACPP and e-biomedicine, you will probably find it. For the first time, describing that changes in the autonomic nervous system precede the development of, uh, of a type So I hope that uh, that's helpful to,
2: to get a little yeah.
0: deeper yeah. insight.
2: Yeah, you're right. I, I, we probably... Um brushed over a little bit but yeah i just want to reiterate like the the results you got in that uh pioneering piloting study on vagal nerve simulation for those patients from my understanding that it, it, it changed their lives with a, a simple you know a simple procedure and um from the anecdotes i've heard that people couldn't hold pens or they you know were bedridden to to then playing tennis and getting told off by the doctors to, to cool yeah. down because you're disturbing this the results It's been it was profound
0: yeah, well, this is very true, actually. Um, and, and there was one of my patients who uh, was involved in the interview in the New York Times at the time, um, really. right? Um, so she was my patient, actually. right? I treated right. her. And then I inv- everybody in my department was invited to also participate in clinical trials. As, as I said, I, gave, I, give you, I will give you the best treatments that are available today. I will always, always invite you to, per- per- to participate in trials to advance the best treatments of tomorrow, uh, and she was one of them, and um, she really responded very well. I have some patients who, years after the start of the study, were still in remission in other words, absence of disease activity. Uh, and they could have, and these patients, it's a minority though, uh, were able to reduce or stop all, of, all other background medication, including corticosteroids. So, that's that's really functional cure. Now we need to ask the question, how can we replicate that? Right? Is this for a specific subgroup of patients who maybe have impaired vagus nerve tone and baseline? Do we need to combine it with other approaches? Can we optimize it by giving uh, the dosing, electrical dosing regimen in a different way? So that's the research agenda for the near future.
2: Wow. Yeah, well, you've done an amazing job in uncovering what I think is a really powerful pathway. It's got a lot of potential. We've already helped a lot of patients' lives. Hopefully there's many more and. Uh, now you're turning your attention to cancer, I'm confident that there's gonna be some major breakthroughs if you're in and around that area in the future. So thanks for your time and congratulations on your very uh, diverse and amazing career. And I I still feel there's many, many chapters and twists and turns to go with you. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you. It was a real pleasure to talk to you, Nadine. And thank you all for listening.
1: For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.